We need to get people around the table. We don't have to agree, but we have to agree about common facts. We lost 20% of our black children in New York City from 2010 to 2020. From 2000 to 2020, we lost 9% of our black population. Largely middle-class people moving down south. Neighborhoods that they lived in has become more competitive largely because of supply pressures. For Meredith Marshall, the managing partner of BRP companies, the answer to the housing crisis comes down to three main things. Supply, supply and supply. He's certainly no stranger to producing unit. In the Bronx, his company is co-developing a massive workforce housing project known as La Centrale. Last year, he wrapped on 500 units at what's known as The Crossing in Jamaica, and he's already underway with 600 units in the same part of Queens. He's also no stranger to the myriad of problems that slows down housing. For example, he's still trying to pull together a housing development that was approved under Mayor Bloomberg. And like a lot of people, he holds pretty grave concerns about what lack of action on housing affordability will mean. I'm Miriam Hall, and on this episode of BizNow Reports, Meredith Marshall talks through some of the changes he thinks needs to happen on a policy level to right the ship when it comes to housing development. We have laws now that management companies can't keep up with. I don't even think the legislature, because I ask people to sponsor bills and they don't even know what the bills are. And that's been consistent. So I think we need less regulation, but smarter regulation. Tenant protections, obviously. Punish bad actors, but don't punish the entire field. He discusses his scrappy early days launching the firm with his business partner. He also shares advice that he gives to young people of colour in the industry. Scale up. Scale up. If you're doing 100 million, try to do a billion dollars in transaction and come up with a plan to scale up. First, though, I asked him about BRP's development in New Rochelle. Last October, the company broke ground on a $297 million mixed-use housing development there. So I asked if this represented a shift away from the city. Well, New Rochelle is in New York State. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's not be, the city, though. Right, but it's Westchester County. And we've um, diversifying a little bit outside of New York just because natural progression is to go outside into the region. And New Rochelle is great. Uh, it's a great city. It's a diverse city. They have a very progressive administration that is um, pro-development. And as such, we have great zoning, uh, decent tax abatements. You've said that um, housing affordability situation in the city is beyond a crisis level. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would argue with that. But you've also said that the urgency from government's not there. For example, I've heard you say publicly that you are still trying to close something that you got approved under Mayor Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. What do you think could be done from a policy perspective to actually move things along? I'm not a political person, and I stay neutral. I don't want to get in trouble. (laughs) Mm. But I think administrations have different um, priorities. This is Bloomberg, right? There's a pretty much, there's a long lead time with all development, uh, low-income development projects because of the subsidy required and the zoning and community approvals. And I think we have to streamline that process. And many times that process exceeds the tenure of a particular administration. So one administration will have a priority, South Bronx, the other one, Queens, the other one, Brooklyn. And if you have to wait five years, which is the typical time now to get an affordable development off the ground, you just have different priorities, different council people, agency heads, and it's just part of the bureaucratic process. So there's no Five blame. years, though? Five years? It could take longer. Well, this one we closed in 2013, so it's 10 years now. <laughs> and we've been on the second phase. We closed the first phase. Mm-hmm. It's up and running, but the second phase. That happens. 
Um, that's why we do a lot of public uh, P3 work, public-private partnerships, but we do a lot of um, private transactions now that still have affordability, still, still is a mixed income in structure, but it's not heavily reliant on city and state and municipal support. Who supports it? Private groups, private lenders, private equity. Like Goldman Sachs, for example. Goldman Sachs, we have BlackRock, we have Basis Investment Group that's headed up by African-American woman named Tammy Jones, who's a good friend, who's supported us to almost $200 million in equity. Um, We have other investors, high net worth uh, individuals, and um, OZ, Opportunity Zone investors also. So you're kind of cutting out the city. We're not cutting out the city. We're just augmenting them uh, with, with private capital because we think the city should be a catalyst for investment, meaning that um, New York City invests, I don't know, three, but if you add up the homeless and you add up the new developments, it could be three, even more, maybe $4 billion. But we're underbuilt by 500,000 units by 2030. Which is a crazy right. amount. And if you look at the cost to build in New York, say it's 500,000 per unit. Someone argues it's more, mm-hmm. but let's round down. If you do the math, that's $250 billion. Divide that by the eight years left, <laughs> and $4 billion a year is not going to cut it. But it could serve as a catalyst, and we don't have a 421A now, right? So, you know, you have something that aspired that we have this four years. I understand today, just today, the governor announced a four-year extension. That's her proposal. That's needed because there's some deals now that are not, that that won't receive financing because of the short duration of the 421A. And if you're not in the ground now and you miss that, then, you know, you're subject to full taxes. Which And I've read also, right. you know, that some of the banks want those projects exactly. finished earlier than yeah. 2026. The banks, but investors, right? <laughs> the banks have the first security, but investors, their first loss position, they're not going to fund a deal that, well, you have to be done in 36 months. What if you're done in 37 months? We don't know what will happen. Mm-hmm. So uncertainty, uh, we need predictability, particularly on a regulatory basis. So we have an artificial crisis because some political people uh, played political football with an as-of-right development, which made New York special. You bought land, you had as-of-right zoning, you have as-of-right tax credit, you know what you can build. Other municipalities have to negotiate. And that's what some people offered, I believe. I don't want to say a name, but, but they want you to negotiate with the councilman. It would never work. First of all, you negotiate with people that don't know. They just don't know this. They're smart people, very articulate. They know the political game. They probably can The council members. Council members and political yeah. people in general. But to negotiate a, a deal, there are people in my office that can't negotiate because that's not what they do. They don't understand all the implications of taxes and the development cost and growth and inflation and, all, and the capital stack. So you, you want to neutralize that by having as of right. So the buyers, the investors, the, the owners, they know what they're getting. And you don't have to curry political favor to get a deal done. That would be a disaster. And that's where we're going. So the big thing, there's three things that will, will abate this housing crisis. New supply. That's the first thing. The second thing is new supply. And the third thing is new supply. And we should be focusing on plans to get the 500,000 units built, not plans to restrict, say, rent control or what is it, good cause eviction. All those things are nice gimmicks. They sound good. But in practice, what they do is they constrict supply. They create an arbitrage because, yeah, you have a good deal. You may not get evicted. And some people think, well, I can't get evicted. I'm going to pay my rent. So what that's that's doing is putting pressure. So we have low-income units. People have great 40% of AMI rents that aren't paying because they think there's the government bailout, or I heard the politician say, don't pay rent. Well, you have a great deal. Why are you paying your rent? You're putting pressure on the building. You can't put money into your operations or defer maintenance. And ultimately, what do you really want to happen? And so 
as per the rent regulations 2019, no MCI increases means that there, by some estimates, they have 40 to 60,000 zombie apartments, meaning apartments that are need of reserva- uh, renovation that aren't being renovated. I'm in Newark, Baltimore, New Rochelle, Atlanta, D.C. now, in markets that aren't high cost as New York. New York is the highest cost market in the country, if not the world, and you need a tax abatement to build there. So what do you think you need to build here? Tax abatement and a half. You need actually a more aggressive tax abatement to build because inflation's higher, cost of construction. We started in this business, our first projects were at, say, 2003, 150 a foot to build a mid-rise mixed unit affordable building. Almost $400 a foot now. Mm-hmm. Subsidies, income ha- hasn't um, increased at that same level. What do you do? <laughs> we're in a, some, some sort of conundrum now, and we're, we're sort of um, legislate, le- legislating um, a situation where we're creating more pressure on supply because you can't add supply under these strictures. It sounds a little bit like you're describing a situation with less regulation but more tax abatements. So government in, in some parts but out in other parts. Government should be a regulatory but broad regulatory. So we have laws now that management companies can't keep up with. I don't even think the legislature, because I ask people to sponsor bills and they don't even know what the bills are. And that's been consistent. So I think we need less regulation but smarter regulation. Tenant protections, obviously, Punish bad actors, but don't punish the entire field. How do you rate the mayor's approach to housing? Real estate seems to love this mayor. Mm-hmm. He's pro-development. It's good. I knew him before. Haven't, you know, he said a lot of things, but haven't seen the rent go down yet. Well, rent's not going to go down unless you create the supply. And the mayor's not in control of the fortune. That's the state legislature and, and the assembly. You need to interview them and say, look, we need a as-of-right tax abatement. And help come up with a plan. Like they can't come up with a plan, by the way, because they don't know how to create yeah. a unit of housing. We do. So I haven't seen too many calls for, for us <laughs> to say, how do you get the 800,000 units? You mean no one's stadiums? coming to you? No one's coming to us and saying, how Legislators do do? aren't coming to no, you? No, no, no. Come to us for other things, but not for the uh, suggestions to increase the supply of housing. I distracted you. Back to the mayor. What, what do you think? No, I think the mayor's doing well. I think we're in communication with them. We're trying to get some things done. He's only in this, it was the end of his first year, beginning of his second year. Uh, it's going to take a while to get this correct, what's been going on. But again, we have rent regulation, 421A, that's suppressing supply. The mayor's limited. They have a $90 billion to $100 billion budget, $3 billion for housing. We need $250 billion of housing. You have to use, the mayor is trying to use his um, bully pulpit as a catalyst, including his budget. But if you're only investing a couple billion a year and you need, I don't know what the math is, we said 500 divided by eight, you need about $60 billion a year if you look at the private sector as a partner. And we're not there yet. You've got La Centrale in the Bronx, a thousand yes. units. Mm-hmm. Um, you've just finished one part, I believe, of the crossing uh, yes. in Jamaica. 600, you know, 600 we, units we there. Finished both, yes. both parts of that. It's a very big, very mm-hmm. big sort of affording, mm-hmm. affordable housing development. Is it still possible to make affordable housing pencil in the city? We have to reimagine that. Uh, 100% low income, very difficult. You need a ton of subsidy. It's probably not the best way moving forward, even from a social policy perspective. Um, we're in favor of mixed income developments where you have this this accelerator, right? You may, you may be low income and in the same building, but then if you make more money, you should move up to paying more money, right? The way the system is, and I don't think most people know this, if let's say you qualify for, for a billing at the inception, 
and you make $40,000 and you qualify for a low-income apartment, let's say you go back to school and get raises or just, you're still in that apartment. <laughs> so what about the person who really needs that apartment? Are people going to force these people out? Politically untenable, right? So one would argue, reimagine the system. We like to build mixed income, meaning if you look at the city, um, I remember the speaker, I was at a function, the speaker said we have 16% of the city makes less than $30,000. Well, you can't build to that demographic. So we need to come up with an operating subsidy model for, for what they call very low or ultra low income households. Right above that, you have the tax credit, you know, 60, 50, 60% up to 80% income averaging. That's the tax credit world. We have to measure that and see how many additional units we need to build. But then let's say if you had a 421A and you said, okay, in some areas, you can build 80% market rate and 20% has to meet that, that 50, 60 70% mark so people can afford those units. And then we take care of the very low income with operating subsidy. And then you build more units and you need less subsidy. We have deals that need $100 million worth of subsidy. How many deals of $100 million can the city and the state do? You're limited, right? And the more construction costs go up, the more interest rates go up, you're just building more. So it's just math. And if you need 50,000 units a year, come up with a plan to build 50,000 units a year. We can do this in the city. We have the capital partners, we have the consultants, the architects, we have the, the ecosystem in place. We may have to expand it, but the private sector can expand much faster than the public sector. And the Blackstones and the Goldmans, they want to be part of these projects, They want to be right? part of it, but there are other people. There are pension funds. The city has a $200 billion pension fund. It should be part of it. Yeah. The state has pension funds. It should be part of it. And, and there's ways. There's sovereign wealth funds. They're, everyone wants to invest in the U.S. It's a safe haven. New York City is the, the best, one of the best brands in the world. What is the problem? I say the problem is artificial. The creativity is not there. The, the entire country is down 7 to 10 million multifamily units. And it's going to take us a while to catch up and build that. But we need better, better pro- we need focus. And then we need follow through. You um, got your start in New York with mm-hmm. a with a development in Brooklyn, yes. falling down building. You bought it. It was on Washington Avenue. Right. You turned it into condos. You <laughs> sold it. Yeah, you sold it. And... Should have kept it as a rental. <laughs> <laughs> Should listen to my wife. <laughs> what do I? Have? You sold it for yeah. good money, and yeah. this was a successful project. Yes. It's got you your start, yes. and you weren't even full time at that point. Right, it was right. like a side hustle. Yeah. Do you still think there are those opportunities available? I mean, do you talk to? When you're talking to younger people in the game, young developers, are those around? That was a large building on Clinton Hill, vacant. We bought it for $2.3 million in 2000, right? I don't know, it's probably $50 a foot. That building now would be you know, $10 million. So you need more money. We bought that. We had put down payment of a couple of thousand dollars. You can do that. You can't buy a brownstone on that block for $2.3 million. So it's very difficult, more capital intensive. Um, you probably can't do it as a side hustle because we were collecting nickel and dimes, friends and family. We raised $3 million from that, having put in probably half of that on our own because it was our third or fourth year in business. But it's very difficult to replicate that nowadays. Because I'm thinking about that when you say, oh, we need creativity, we need ideas. There's, just not, there's not the chance to fail and give it a go so much in the city. Right. But there, look, we had... There was one group called Full Spectrum, Carlton Brown and Walter Edwards. They were in Harlem. They were doing larger deals, and we sought their advice, and they put us in touch with CPC, the lender. And, you know, it's a small community, a big city, but a small community. And now there are probably a couple dozen BRPs. We're probably the largest MWB, well, right, MWB firm is what they call us. But we're part of, of, of um, 
HPD has a program, I think, with LISC and Columbia University, I believe. And, you know, we, we there's a buddy system, a mentoring system to bring people up. But it takes a while to be a developer. Everyone can't be a developer. And a developer is actually a glorified investor. And you're limited by your resources, right? So a lot of people, hey, you have bad credit, have no cash, got to be developed. Mm-hmm. Answer, short answer, no. Long <laughs> answer, maybe, but you have to. Not for a while. <laughs> Not for a while, right. But there's ways to do it. Not-for-profits are in the game, but we need to scale up in a big way. So we're doing, I think, a 1,000 units a year, and we were doing maybe 100 units a year five years, six years ago. But God, we that's a huge up. increase. Yes, yeah, so but we had to. You have to grow. You, if you don't adapt, you die. Is, is, is that what they say? And uh, so we had to grow. Uh, and look, it's the same headache to do a 50-unit project as it is to do a 500-unit project. But it's hard to make money doing a 50-unit project with this overhead. We started out storefront in Fort Greene, two and a half people. You can do a small project. You can't do it when you have like 70 people on the payroll. Now that you're mentoring more and talking mm-hmm. to, to younger developers, mm-hmm. I mean, what are you telling them? Mm-hmm. First of all, there's mentoring, but there's sponsorship. So some are in mm-hmm. our deals. We're sponsoring them. You learn by doing. And there's a long lead time. So we put them in a deal. They have 5 or 10% of a deal. These are young people These who you're teaching. people, you know, 20 years younger, 30 years younger. You know, Jeff and I bought our first place when we were 22 in Boston. So we've been in the game a long time. And so we, we know the pitfalls, but there's a growth, there's a trajectory. And we started with a three-unit in Boston, four-unit in, in Clinton Hill. The, the Graham home was the, the fourth or fifth project, 25 units, 52 units. And now we have about, you know, half a dozen projects, 500 units and greater. But that took, you know, 20 years. Or this is our 20th year in business, formally. We were doing deals before, like a side hustle. But this is our 20th anniversary. And it takes a while. You know, there's been a lot of talk about diversity in real estate mm-hmm. or the lack thereof. Do you mm-hmm. think that that is, you know, there is meaningful change happening at the moment or is it is it still like the rhetoric, the conversations, the pledges, the promises? I, I say this. I go to this function every year, affordable housing, a bank. I can't mention the bank, but they hold a shindig at a great place. And they <laughs> take the top 50 affordable developers in the country. And we made the list, right? And we started five years ago. We're the only one. Now there are three. So what's that? A major 300% increase from one to, but. Still low. It's still low. And it takes time. That's all. But there are a lot more, but from a small base. So we look at it like this, pure numbers. I was trained as an electrical engineer, a lot of math and science. If you look at the country, say, take African-Americans or black people, whatever designation you want to use, approximately, say, 15%. I'm going to gross it up a little bit. Um, 15% of population. We should be 15% of the developers, particularly in urban areas where we're a higher percent of the population. There's a tremendous gap between this, the the people who can develop and the development needs. And so that gap is being addressed, but you know we're probably two generations away from where we need to be. Two generations? Two generations. Does that 50 years? Yes. That's not very um, it is what cheery. It is. Well, it is what it is. There's a long arc. Um, I was listening to Steve Harvey. You know who he is. Yes, and I he do. He said he met with one of my former classmates, uh, Robert Smith, who's the richest African-American, and Rob told him to scale up. But Rob told me the same thing seven years ago. Scale up. Scale up. Scale up. If you're doing 100 million, try to do a billion dollars in transaction and come up with a plan to scale up. Uh, a lot of business owners, and we do this in cities and other places, we support this single proprietor, one person. The person should get a job. 
if they can't scale up because you're wasting resources with a one or two man shop. We should be looking, and this may be controversial to some, at if someone is employing 10 people, how do you get them to 100 people? Because then when they get to 100 people, you'll create entrepreneurs just naturally coming out of that 100 person group. That's what we should be focusing on. Why do you think there is that disconnect? Because a lot of people don't know business. They right. go, oh, I'm going to help a guy. You know, he, he's the, you know, he's the, um, the shop owner, the cook, and the waitress. That's probably not the best way to scale um, because um, it's just too, um, too random. And again, what are we trying to do here? Um, we're trying to scale a community. You mentioned there's not enough African-American developers. Well, if you focus on a person doing three units, um, why not focus on B- BRP doing 3,000 units? Maybe I can train that person, and when they leave, they become a developer, and they can do 300 units. But we have to then change our focus. A lot of focus is on business um, establishment. It should be on scaling. Medium, small businesses become medium-sized businesses. Not necessarily, because those people, they figured it out, right? I like people who say, look, I'm making money already. Invest in me so I can make more money. Another person says, well, I need a job. I don't have a job, so I'm going to start a business. I'm not going to bet on that person. And our business is called track record. You know, development and real estate has become like a much sort of sexier job, you know, in the right. recent years. So what would your advice be to maybe a young African-American person or a black person who mm-hmm. wants to be in real estate, wants to scale up? Well, you have a job because I, I couldn't afford I didn't have rich parents to say, you know, you can travel to Europe and come back. And, Gap year. Yeah, none of that. So it was, I have a job, right? Young, we're 22 years old, a ton of energy. Stop. Entertaining is nice. You can, work, you can play hard, but you got to work hard. Work nine to five, come home, work on a plan with Jeff and our partners. Three of us were our first place. Were you working as an engineer at that yeah, time? Yeah, Jeff worked, uh, Jeff was working in finance at 9X, and uh, our other partner was another engineer. He worked for 9X, and I, I worked 30 miles north. I had the, fir, uh, the, far, the far drive to uh, Andover, Massachusetts at uh, AT&T Bell Labs. And what we did is we bought our first property, divided into condos, added another bedroom, and rented them out to old fraternity brothers. And it covered the mortgage, and then we uh, went to New York and almost did the same thing. Jeff and I were roommates when we owned our brownstone and rented out the three units where we didn't have to pay rent. We saved money, and then we bought other property with that. Mm-hmm. So you, you learn how to be a property owner. You learn how to manage a building. You learn how to renovate the building. And then we started doing acquisition rehab, and then we got into new construction. But that took five, six, seven years, making money along the way. You have net worth increasing. You have, you have uh, income. I remember not cashing my paychecks. That was the 90s, though. Like no, 2003. 2003. We started, but we started late 90s. You started so. in the late 90s. So when people were listening to this would say, oh, well, I can't do that now because everything's too expensive. Well, you can. There are deals. Uh, there are small deals that we can't do. And, but a lot of people want to do it on their own. Like I said, our first deal was three of us, then Jeff and I. But if you look, we own a lot of property. I only own two properties on my own. One with my wife is a townhouse. And a piece of land that we want to build in Martha's Vineyard. I don't own a lot by myself. A lot of people want to do it on their own. You can't. A lot of times they have 10 investors. The Graham home, we had 10 investors, ex-football players, fraternity brothers. We had doctors that we went to school with from yeah, another real estate investor from New York who was a wealthy white uh, Park Avenue guy, ranging from someone giving us 25000 to the person in Park Avenue, 300000 We raised $3 million that way. Basically, a lot of investors... That's how you do it. You can't do it on your own. 
get someone who's you know knows. If you need money, you have to meet people. Man, that's why the interesting thing about mixed income communities. A lot of people are saying there's this formula: you're the sum of or the average of the five people you hang with, right? Let's say you live in a low income, low um, opportunity neighborhood, and all you know is people struggling. How could you raise the capital? You couldn't. Bingo. If your issue is money, you have to find a money partner. If if it's execution, if it's accounting, if it's construction, you have to find partners that are skilled in those areas, and that's how you put this thing together. A developer is almost like a conductor. Of an orchestra? Of an orchestra. And you've identified all the, all the participants in the orchestra and put them together. And then I have this room. This is a board. We have a bigger conference room. But we make magic when we have architects, lawyers, engineers, uh, designers, um, brokers in a room. And the ideas, it's like magic. And all of a sudden, you have 28-story building. Your father came to the U.S. from Barbados, yes. and then you you were raised in East Flatbush, yes. as far as I understand, um, and you were one of the first families, people of color on yes. that block, and, and from what I've read, it was great upbringing and oh, yes. fa- fabulous place to yeah. grow up. A lot of kids on the block. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine yeah. it, you know. Um, but, you know, when you read a story like that story in the New York Times this week, where we're reading about black families leaving, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I thought the statistics were staggering. It's yes. like... 19% of black and brown oh, yes. teenagers are gone. That means right. families in are leaving. In 10 years. In 10 years. I mean, what do you think about that as someone who grew up here? Um, mixed feelings. Really? Right? Yeah, mixed feelings. Because I grew up, I took my kid, we sold our family home after 50 years. And I renovated it and sold it. And, you know, I took my kids there at the end. And, and I told them that we could get 10 on 10 or 9 on 9 baseball game, touch football, easily. They were on our block alone. They had 10 kids my age. Boys, not even the girls. <laughs> it was amazing growing up. Some had pools. It was nice. We had baseball. I mean, we played every sport. It was one. I didn't see any kids out. No kids. No vibrancy. And so you go to places like Atlanta and Maryland and other places, Texas. I have family members who grew up in that neighborhood are raising their kids in Alabama, Texas, Atlanta. They're all Seattle. And I looked. I said, all my family members, all my cousins are gone. I'm the only one in New York. Why? Well, I have a business here. But if you go to those other places, business friendly. The schools are decent. You can get a bigger house. So New York has more competition. And what did New York do? Stop building. NIMBYism. So what, what we have here is adverse selection. We have wealthy people. And people like me, I'm not considered a wealthy person. <laughs> I have to be here for business reasons. And then you have people who can't move. The people who can move are moving. So I think we have a political issue. Um, The policymakers are not, um, how do we say this nicely, are not addressing uh, the issues at hand. When you have 200,000 people leaving and you lost 19% of a demographic, there's a reason for that. Do you think that the industry can band together and make the city what you believe it should be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why do you have so much faith? Because I'm an optimist. Um, and I believe that we're, we're going to get it right long term if we're honest and not selfish. What I can do is be quiet and, you know. Make a killing. Make a killing. <laughs> deal with my family. But I'm out investing in areas that 
just couldn't attract the capital before, whether it's redlining or lack of investment or lack of enthusiasm. Like places like Jamaica? Jamaica, yeah. Queens, and the Bronx. Newark, mm. Bronx, all these places that are underinvested and have great people. Most people are hardworking. It's not just one demographic's hardworking. Most people are hardworking. Most people deserve decent housing and to build that housing for everyone of all incomes. That's what we should be doing. We have a lot better data than we did 20 years ago. And that's why the firms that are can interpret today, like the Goldman Sachs, the Black Rocks, these private equity funds, they're saying, well, the missing middle is what? Low-income people have tax credits, Section 8, and, and um, public housing. Not enough of it, right? Rich people, they're fine. They can go anywhere. <laughs> and if you pay up, you can live anywhere. The missing middle is probably 70, we estimate two-thirds to 70% of the market. It's a huge opportunity. Huge opportunity. Seven to 10 million units in the country. Now, in the country, it's about 350. I heard from one of our guys who work with us, uh, interns doing well in Atlanta. He says it's about 350,000 a unit to build in Atlanta. Now, say Atlanta's the midpoint for the country, right? You need 10 million units. You know what that number is? $3.5 trillion you need, right? We can do that in this country, though, because that's over, say, 20-year period, 30-year period, you know, $100 billion a year. We can do that with the private sector, right? And look at the jobs we create, sustainability, no fossil fuels. We can go all electric or photovoltaic or um, what do you call the, 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 um, the ge geothermal loops. Mm. We can do that, modular building. And look at the job creation, right? Why aren't we coming up with that plan? I'm New York has 3.3 million units. Take out one-third that are want to occupy. So we need at least forty to 50,000 units a year. Look at the housing starts, the permits, it's probably half of that. So nothing, every year you're behind. Nothing in 2020. Right, or 16,000. Yes, like yeah, tiny. So that's the issue, and that's what we have to address. So get the advocates. People say, housing now, we're not going to pay the rent. That's what we have to solve, is supply and demand. Musical chairs is a great analogy. Musical chairs, you know the game you play? Yeah. If there are four chairs and five people, you have a problem. If there are four chairs and four people, you're okay. If there are four chairs and three people, you're fantastic. We have a problem that there are more people than we have musical chairs. Do you think that there's a better relationship between the advocates, the development community, and the political community? Mm -hmm. Are we getting to that? I mean, because, you know, for example, I'm thinking about the task force, the mayor's task force mm -hmm. on the uh, office conversions, and mm -hmm. I saw there was a whole bunch of people and there was an advocate on it as well. And I'm wondering... Yeah, I'm an advocate. But what credential do you have? Like, I have people that yell at me. Have a, what is that? Like, do you get licensed to be an advocate? I'm not, a lot of people tell me, hey, you got to get the community buy-in. But who's the community? I'm not the community. I've been living in Brooklyn, you know, since what, my entire life almost. I went to Brooklyn Tech, all the public schools. I work in every borough. My boys play baseball, so I'm Staten Island. I know everybody. I'm not the community. I don't know what's going on, but you're a community person that's 24 years old, what do you know? We sit down with people who have to um, decide on a project, and sometimes we just change the date, and we, don't, we know they didn't read it, and we just change the date, we make the same presentation every time for three months, and it takes us two years to get it approved. Streamline that. Most municipalities now have six people, IDA or one-stop shop, and they approve things. We go to a councilman that's you know grandstanding, takes three years, and we don't get the productivity we need because it takes too long in New York. So people like that process. But you have a process, who is actually participating in the process? Is it community board people who are tired, 
who who want to go home, who are not really paying attention, who don't want to be built because they have housing. Matter of fact, you can't let people who have housing deny people who don't have housing. The, the governor said today that she's she, last year she tried to put out a, a new yes. affordable New York, yes. it didn't ever make it to yes. law, went nowhere. Now she's trying to do. Now she said she's going to work with the legislature to make a new one. I mean, do you? How do you rate? How optimistic are you that this is going to be something that is actually going to do what it says it's going to do? I think the migrant issue, putting people in tents, um, everyone's figuring out now. There's no housing units now. I think there's pressure. They have to do something because I don't think they want it on their watch that the city went sideways or or started to um, decline because of political interference and suboptimal policy. That's Meredith Marshall. He's the managing partner of BRP Companies. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.